This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Abigail Hausloner is a roving national correspondent with The Washington Post. Her latest, it's called New Americans. A big part of the story are Afghans being resettled in the U.S. after the fall of Afghanistan. One thing I did sort of hear consistently from folks is that that refugee resettlement groups, um, you know, didn't really prepare them for the for the racism and, and for the for the sort of cultural reality of this country. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Growing up in D.C. for Wendell Austin wasn't easy. Drug infested neighborhood. When it came to education. I tried to go to high school. He took a few wrong turns. I got punished by the streets. But then he heard basketball player Charles Barkley say something. Uh, He said that I'm not a role model. The parents should be role models. So when I heard that when I was like 12 years old, I I stopped looking up to athletes. I I stopped looking up to my mother more. So he got to it, got trained, spent 10 years learning how to be a butcher, and in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, opened his own shop in one of the most exclusive areas of D.C., began selling some of the most expensive but delectable food in the city. And not only are people wild about his products, but his story as well. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. African-American, Washingtonian, grew up on U Street, Washington, D.C., uh, Northwest. And I'm J.J. Green. And I'm Black. And this is Colors. I'm pretty sure you've heard the story about what to do when life gives you lemons. You make lemonade. This podcast is featuring a guy who took the lemons that life gave him Instead of simply making lemonade, sound right, boys. He took those lemons, planted the seeds from them, and grew an entire lemon grove. Now he's selling those lemons. And that's metaphorical, of course, but this is a success story. Some call it unlikely, others would call it inspired. His name is Wendell Allsbrook. He's the Georgetown Butcher. And what a story he's got to tell us today. It goes beyond being a butcher. It goes into how to survive the mean streets and how to create a dream and then turn it into a reality. Mr. Allsbrook, I read an article about you in the Washington Post that was written early in 2021. And the title of it was, he put it all on the line, opening his butcher shop a year ago, then the pandemic hit. 
I realized reading that article that you were the same person that a colleague had told me about who had a friend that is one of your customers. And this person told me that this is a remarkable story about a man who basically uh, defied the odds. An African-American man from the inner city of Washington, D.C., who spent a good amount of his life uh, working and learning the trade of butchering and learning the butcher trade, I should say. And then you opened your own shop, but you did it in a very affluent part of Washington and have been very successful. First of all, let me just say welcome to the show. Thank you. Second thing, tell me when you realized that when this idea or your dream came to you, how did it happen? So I started uh, working in the food industry back in 2003. Uh, So what that did was that opened my eyes up on, uh, you know, like a career, uh, finding my niche. So I got a chance to work at a butcher shop, uh, Organic Butcher McLean. And so when I started working there, uh, it gave me like really all the hands-on experience I needed to to start dreaming and start thinking about opening up my own butcher shop. And that's where the idea came from. Uh, The whole concept came from uh, me working for somebody 15, 20 years, uh, me working as hard as I can. And, uh, one day I wanted to put myself in a position to open up my own butcher shop. Well, you clearly did it and it rocked. Um, and I want to get back to that in a minute, but I want to ask you a couple of questions about growing up. Describe how it was growing up, um, in Washington, DC. I grew up, uh, I grew up in a house uh, 2005, 13th Street. I was born 1979. And so when I was a kid, I grew up on U Street, went to uh, Harrison Elementary School, and just was a normal neighborhood kid, uh, hung out at uh, Ben Chili Bowls a lot. You know, like I'm, uh, I'm friends, I'm part of the uh, Ben Chili Bowls family. So, uh, you know, like it was just typical inner city kid. And then as I got older, I moved on uh, 14th and W. And it was just like, it was drug infested neighborhood, just like any other neighborhood in DC. But you know, like I ain't let that stop me mm-hmm. from doing what I needed to do to be successful. Talk a little bit about the circumstances you grew up under. I realized in reading that article, you said there's a quote in there that says, growing up, my mom's, I love that because, you know, certain people from certain generations use that word moms. Growing up, my moms would spend $150 to, to fill the refrigerator and we would eat for weeks. And you said in this article that you just sold a family $150 of meat for one night. And you said that was your wake up call. Walk us through that. So back in the day, like when my mom, she used to get paid like every two weeks or once a week, can't really recall, but she'd go to the store and spend 150 bucks. This is probably like in 92, 91, you know, like when I was like 10. 
And so that food would last us for a month, maybe three weeks, but like a month. She, you know, like we wouldn't have to go back to the store because 150 bucks was a lot. So then when I started working out in McLean in 2003, 2004, like one family meal that particular night was like 150 bucks. And I was just like, <laughs> I need to, you know, I need to pay attention to what's going on out here because, uh, you know, like it was just real, real eye opening, uh, been part of, you know, like just, just been able to cap- capture that moment. Yeah. Step us through your education, you know, because most people doing what you do, they go to college, they go to some of them get MBAs, you know, to prepare them for that uh, job. But you have achieved significant success. Tell us what kind of education you have for this. So uh, I went to uh, uh, Harrison Elementary School. Then I went to Shaw I tried to go to high school at the time. When I tried to go to high school, they had a a, a fire code violation at Roosevelt High School. And that kind of like pushed me kind of away from school. And then once they really let the doors open, let the kids come inside the school, what they did was they was trying to teach me a lot of stuff that I learned in junior high school. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, like, didn't go. I wanted to, you know, hang out, hang out with the big, the big guys, you know, big guys in the neighborhood. Wanted to, you know, like experience the uh, DC uh, street life. So what I did was I dropped out of high school, maybe the ninth for the tenth, and never, never thought about, uh, never thought about it. What it did was it made me uh, determined to be successful. Mm-hmm. So. You've done it, but I want you to tell our listeners how you did it. But, but you know, first we should put in the cont- context. Most people know Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Most people have heard of it. Um, Georgetown University is there. It's one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the city, but I would say one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the country when you start looking at the cost of homes there, millions of dollars, exclusive stores, um, and this is not, I would say this may not be an easy market to break into, but you did it. And interestingly enough, just as you did it, the pandemic came along. So this was last year, um, that this all went down. So, so, so tell us how you've been able to be successful despite this pandemic. So, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, at the very beginning, that's when I opened the doors up uh, to start this company in Georgetown. So the world shut down and people kept saying, you picked a good time to open a start a company. And so, you know, like what that did was, it was a cheap shot, you know, like, so what that did was that fired a few and so I was able to just like pray to God, you know, like hanging there every day. Uh, my life, my mentor coach told me, keep my head down, c- c- keep continue working hard. Don't let nothing stop you. So I did that. I was able to uh, reach out to a lot of my uh, clientele based out in McLean, Virginia. 
they were stuck in the house with uh, no way of getting product. I was able to deliver product in McLean, Arlington, upper part of Northwest. Uh, some products went to Prince George's County. I just started a whole delivery operation. People wasn't allowed to come inside my store at the time. So it was just like pushing out orders out of the door, curbside pickup, uh, what else? Uh, I walk a few deliveries to people's houses, drop them off, contactless drop-offs. It was just a little bit of everything. It gave, it gave me a chance to learn quick how to become a business owner. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it didn't give me a chance to relax. It gave me a chance to learn quickly. Mm-hmm. How much of your business is delivery, is drop-off, and how much is it? people coming into the store right now is it is it picking up or is it still based on mostly that model so and i'm gonna be quite honest with you so it been uh it been it's it's the pandemic like you know i might have one good week like uh holiday came labor day uh rosh hashanah came and it was it, it it looked like it was going to turn the corner, like people was going to keep coming back the next week. And so what happened was sales dropped right back down to what it was at. But now it's September, October, November, and December coming. So we're just looking forward to the future. Mm-hmm. What do people get from coming to your butcher shop that they wouldn't get from going someplace else. What what is the draw there? What's the advantage of coming to you? Uh everything we do there is hands on. Like is is every piece of product that come in and we put our hands on it. Uh we cut it. We make sure the quality is there. We uh we don't sell anything but the highest quality product. So what that do is that put us in a position where as every time somebody come there, the product need to taste just like they got it six months ago. And that's very important when you're selling high quality product, the product that we sell. Okay. Because our uh our our clientele base uh, that's why they pay the premium dollar for the product. That was my next they, question. <laughs> that, was, that was my next question. They, Go ahead. And they want to have the ultimate experience of every time they come there, it's the same experience. Like you could put salt, pepper, olive oil on it. You could cook it to a mid-red. You can cook it to a medium. And you don't need to cook out all the nutrients in the beef. You, uh, the chicken is free range, uh, no antibiotics, uh, pasture raised, and you know, like it's a premium product. Whereas, like a lot of people be shocked when they come inside the store. They be like, "Oh, it costs this much," but then I see them keep coming back after that, and you know, like they become part of the whole Georgetown butcher crowd. So, talk about that crowd a little bit, maybe. Um, how big is the crowd? I don't want to to, you know, get too deep into your, you know, your, 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 you know, your business details, because, you know, part of that, I don't, you don't want to share, but 
Uh, and that's good. But um, just give us a sense of how big your clientele is. So right now, um, uh, it, it been a challenge. It's been one of the biggest challenge I was looking forward to coming to Georgetown is meeting new clients, meeting new people, educating and being, being an educator on like, why do you shop local? Why do you shop independent, small independent stores? Like, uh, what do I do? What's my name? You know, like, you know, like a lot of people, they, a lot of people come there. They just be like, look, I just want to come and say hi to you and introduce myself. Uh, I don't want to buy anything today. I'm walking in the neighborhood, but I will be back. I order some stuff online and then they, they, they come back. And so a lot of the clients, a lot of the clients I build up over the last 15, 20 years, that clientele is in McLean and Arlington, Virginia. So it gave me, it's given me the challenge now to build a whole new clientele base here in Georgetown. And that that been my primary goal. And uh I haven't had a chance and uh going door to door yet, but uh coming this holiday season, I'll be able to go door to door and campaign that I'm here in Georgetown and I got the best product. Let me just throw this out there. This Washington Post article says his inventory was all expensive and had a short shelf life. Japanese A5 Wagyu beef, $219 a pound. Salmon from Scottish Highlands, $29 or $22.99 a pound. Grass-fed lamb from Australia, $28.99 a pound. A chicken, $25. <laughs> so how do you convince people? And you've said it already. You know, it's the quality and, and the work that you put into making sure it, it's right. But... Um, that is expensive. So how do you convince these folks to keep coming back? Uh, it's just, you don't oversell the product. You don't un- undersell the product. Uh, you don't know how to triple convince people why they need to buy the product. It been, it been, it been an unbelievable word of mouth. Like somebody recommended me come down here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting tired of, such and such and such and such and people say your product is a lot better than them and that and that what and 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 that's what it been so you know like my my thing is when you when when you step when you come inside georgetown butcher you get the product that tastes the difference it's Mm -hmm. do cost a little bit more money but it's the highest quality product that's on the market. And that's the only product that we can sell there because the people expect for us to have the best product. Just one more question about this. Then I want to talk a little bit about race. Um, You've mentioned we several times. What's your team look like? Uh, My team uh, consists of uh, supporting cast is my partners, investors, how big is it? Uh, it's, it might be like a 10, 12. I started, I started off with like 20 people. Mm-hmm. I started off with maybe 10 people behind the scenes, 10 people inside the store once I opened up. I was strong when I opened up. Now, uh, I work six, seven days a week. 
uh, it's the business settled down a lot. So I'm able to manage it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so now there's only three people that's working in the inside, mm-hmm. including myself. Wow. That's, well, you know, if things pick up, then you're going <laughs> to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to hire some people, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, I'm, uh, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to, uh, start taking the applications because, uh, what I'm, what I'm about to do is I'm about to open up a bigger location up on Wisconsin Avenue. Wow. Okay. Well, um, we're looking forward to all that and, you know, congratulations on everything you've done. Uh, and what you're doing, your dream, the whole business, because not a lot of people are able to realize a dream like that. Uh, and just looking at your your background, you know, I've spoken to a couple of people that are just remarked, remark, feel that what you've done is remarkable. Uh, and being an African-American male myself, I understand the challenges to being successful. There are all sorts of things that get thrown at you. Uh, and not looking to play the victim here. I'm just saying that's just the way it is. And you know that. Uh, so I'm interested in your take on last year was the pandemic, but also there were Black Lives Matter protests all over the streets. And, you know, um, you know, a lot, a lot happened. So what's your what's your view on yourself as an African-American man? working in, in a place that's that's largely dominated by non-black or mostly white people, uh, affluent people. Uh, so what's your view on the whole um, Black Lives Matter movement, to how it impacts you, the city, and, you know, the country? So when all of, all of the George Floyd stuff was going on, what it did was it showed people a way to how it showed people the way of how to come together. Mm-hmm. Not only the black people, but just about all all particular races out there. And it showed people how, uh, how should I say, it, how relentless they was when they was down at the White House. You know, like they was down there pretty much every night. Yeah, you know, like. Uh, I was working 10, 12 hours a day. I got a chance to go down there and, uh, and, and check out things. And, you know, like it brought, it brought the people together and, you know, like it, 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 it's still, it's still going to be tough no matter what, but, you know, like, but one example showed that people can definitely come together. And once people stop coming together, you're going to still have the same stuff breaking out. So the more and more people stick together, I think we can always get united and just just stay together. You know, like I'm uh, I'm always out in the community walking around, you know, like I from from myself, I respect each individual. And I know that should be the policy with every individual, but it's not like that. And regardless of what I say, would it just bring people together? Would it unbring people together? I don't know if I'm responsible for that, but I'm responsible for being a role model for the people that I need to be a role model for. That's interesting because I was just going to ask you do, if you felt as though you were a role model. And I think you've just explained a part of why you feel like you are. 
who are you a role model to? Uh, I believe I'm a role model in a, to everybody, not just only the young people, but like older people, people my age, people I grew up with, like a lot, a lot of people when they said that they seen my interviews on Fox News Channel, all of my interviews, they said it just brought them into tears because like my, my whole goal was, and if I bring you around 15, 20 of my childhood friends or my neighborhood friends. I talked about my own butcher shop pretty much every day since 2005. Mm-hmm. And they can tell you that. And so when they see me on the news, it just brought, you know, like it just, it just brought people into tears. But the thing about being a role model is you got to lead by example. And the people that, want you to be that role model, they need to change into what they want to be. You cannot be the prime source of them doing good. They got to want to do good themselves. So it's a lot of, you know, like back in the day I heard, uh, and I stopped, you know, like I stopped relying on like professional people that I seen on TV to be role models because Charles Barkley, he said, and I know he said it, uh, he said that I'm not a role model. The parents should be role models. So when I heard that when I was like 12 years old, I, I stopped looking up to athletes. I stopped, I stopped looking up to my mother more. And she was single parent working at uh, hospitality. And I just had to get her drive, work hard every day, and I don't think my mom's went to high school. So I was just like, I'm just going to be determined to be successful, you know, like just like her. So he, he, he nailed it when I was young and I just stopped looking at uh, professional people trying to be the role model. Uh, you know, like Jay-Z came along the way. Mm-hmm. I look up to him more than I look up to any professional athlete because he, what, what he speak, he speak high value on, how everything need to be. And, you know, like a lot of people need to listen to his music. And that's what I kind of latch on with, you know, like for my upcoming, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's a lot of this stuff that's been said, but who pay attention to it? Yep. You know what? <laughs> you said you stopped looking up to athletes and you started looking up to your mom as your role model. And look what she did. Look what you did. Check that out. Look at what you did, man. You know? So, yeah. So, you know, like, I know it's t- it's tough and not only in D.C., but the inner city and all of these states, city, Baltimore, uh, Flint, Michigan, you know, like, all these inner city, it's a lot of single parents here. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of African-American single parents, uh, white American single parents. You know, like, whatever your mother do, if there's no data around, pay attention to your moms. I mean, she going to tell you as much as she can tell you. She going to guide you as much as she can guide you. But you got to put in the work as a child. And it was some, sometimes I ain't listen to my moms and I got punished. I got punished by the streets. I got punished by God. But mm-hmm. then when I was able to go home and pray, get on my knees and ask for forgiveness, she was there the next morning. Saying things will be all right. Just keep believing in yourself. So, you know, like uh, like all these children going through stuff that I've been through, 
And they don't listen to their moms. They don't, you know, like they don't listen, you know, like, so it's going to be consequences that come down that turnpike that they're going to be like, I wish I listened to my mom. My mom told me to stay away from certain people. I had to stay away from certain people. Yeah. Wendell, let me ask you this question. Um, So I've been here for 30 years and, you know, I was working here when you were a kid. And I remember when I first came to town, there was a big, big time murder wave going through the city. You probably remember, you were a little guy then. And I remember one day looking at an article in the Washington Post of a late model BMW. It was a photograph of this BMW in that neighborhood you were talking about that you grew up in. And it was at night, the door was open, the car was running, you could see steam coming out of the uh, tailpipe of the car. It was a really nice red BMW. And there were four bullet casings laying on the street. The photographer from the Washington Post took that picture. And that picture was of a scene that had taken place where I think it was an 11 or 12-year-old kid had been killed in a drug situation that went bad. And you clearly escaped that. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you um, talk to young people today? Because we're hearing about teenage, preteens, 12, 13, 14-year-olds running around with weapons, you know, drug or whatever is, I'm not sure what their motivation is, but people are dying and they are dying. So what's your message? Uh, you know, like I grew up DC, you know, like people know me to grow up Northwest Washington, DC. And so the thing that me, myself, I can go from the upper part of Northwest to the bottom part of Northwest. I know people on every block, you know, like I respect people since I was a little kid. And the thing about it is now people don't respect each other. And then the huge thing is going on right now is if you grew up in this neighborhood and you a child, you 10 years old, you don't have no enemies, but you 10 years old, you, you affiliated with that organization because you grew on, you growing up in that neighborhood, you, 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 your house is in that neighborhood. So you affiliated with that neighborhood. And so what I used to do when I was a kid was if I know some stuff going on and I don't want to be bothered with it, I come out and tell people I don't have shit to do with that. Excuse my French, but you know, like, I'm, you know, like, I don't think, the kids can do that anymore. You know, like, I don't think, you know, like, people, you got to be tough. You had to be tough back then. You got to be tougher now to yeah. grow up in D.C. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, like, I, I don't think the kids making smart decisions on, you know, like, I don't think they think about their livelihood because, you know, like, it's a lot of stuff going on and somebody need to tell the kids like it is. Like, if you don't have nothing to do with it, stay out of it. You know, like admit, you know, like form a form alliance and say, look, I want to continue to live. I don't have nothing to do with it. Keep your head down. 
Don't hang out with whoever you don't need to hang out with and you won't be affiliated. Wow. That's powerful, brother. That is super powerful. And, um, you know, I think that what you're doing as the Georgetown butcher is only an infinitesimal part of what you're doing, what you're doing for, for, for Washington, for New York, for Los Angeles, Miami, Dallas, you know, let's look at Atlanta, big cities in Chicago, all across the country. You have kids that are in harm's way of all races uh, and in situations where they're too young to understand what to do to, 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 to survive. But what you've done is you've shown them how to do it by coming through what you came through, then having the audacity to start a business in one of the most affluent cities in the world and being successful at it. I mean, super successful. But then remembering that message enough to share it. And you just basically gave these kids a a step-by-step uh, blueprint for how to do what you've done. So thank you. You're welcome. Any final thoughts you want to add before we check out of here? Uh, um, I, I think I said enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm friends with this one popular uh, chef. Uh, his name is Chef uh, Declan Hogan. He, he was a, a finalist on uh, Hell's Kitchen 2019 season. Uh, he called me today. I mean, he texted me today. I told him what I was going to do. He told me to give him a shout out. So shout out Declan. Uh, I think he got a huge project going on in Tyson's and, uh, he just waiting to open up his doors. He's going to start like a barbecue, barbecue joint out there. I'm looking forward to, uh, going and hanging out with Declan, you know, like shout out to everybody in DC, you know, like rest in peace, mom. I love you. And that's just about it. Well, you know what? Um, we send a, uh, a posthumous thank you to your mom for what she's done for you. Uh, and um, thank you to Mr. Hogan for, for being your friend. And thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Wendell Allsbrook. He is the Georgetown butcher, and he's doing great things, and keep your eye on him. He's going to go places, even bigger places than he is. Thank you again, sir. Yes, sir. You're listening to Colors. My name is Mike Jakaitis. I am the Afternoon Drive producer for WTOP, and I'm an Asian American. I am Filipino on my mom's side and Lithuanian white on my dad's side. As a kid, I was made fun of a little, but nothing really bad. But, you know, I was made fun of because of how I looked from whites and blacks, to be honest. I am part of an interracial marriage. I married a very lovely Irish girl. I've never had any problem with her family. They all liked me. They had no problem with our relationship uh, from the start. However, my wife did tell me that if there were some relatives that were still living at the time that we got married, there would have been some issues. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. My name is Mindy Peterson. I'm a white woman from the Midwest. My name is Man Rashid Arikat. I am Palestinian, was born in Jericho in the West Bank. Hi, I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. 
My name is Anjali Chong, and I am Korean-American living just outside of Seattle, Washington. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. In 2015, several students from Jeb Stewart High School in Northern Virginia decided to try to change the name of the school. It, it, it got really hateful. It got really ugly. Where, where the, you know, kind of ad hominem attacks and wow. personal attacks, attacks uh, to, to children. After a bitter two and a half year fight, the name of the school was changed to Justice. Debbie Ratliff is one of the parents that was intimately involved in that situation. She admits they made mistakes along the way. Now that the name has been changed, the community is trying to heal. And while fist fights are breaking out at school board meetings in other parts of the country, perhaps there's a lesson here that they can learn. The lesson is that we need to listen to each other and really hear each other and be patient and be respectful to each other. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or some ideas for a show, guests for a show, let us know. You can write us an email. We're at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Well, now, it's time to close the door and move on to the next thing. Thank you to Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Mary DePompa, Hillary Howard, Matt Small, the Reverend John Petty, Naqib and Najib Ahmad, Siddiqui, No One Left Behind, Peggy Byard, Angelie Chong, Joby Warwick, Jeru Bande, Ariva Martin, Joey Rivera, Greg Christian, Denise Douglas, Zuli Orozco, Christy Carson, Thomas Warren, Steve Weish, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Michael Grinston, Sean Anderson, and for the music, thanks to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, and a gigantic thank you to you for listening. And finally, just remember, keep talking to each other, and just as importantly, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can subscribe using our very own Podcast DC app. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.